2: Hello there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host Pengfei Zhao speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Today I will be talking with Trina Pallas and Alyssa Weiss on their new book, Looking for Insights, Transformation, and Learning in Online Talk. In an era of physical distancing, many social and educational research activities have been moved from face-to-face to online settings. As researchers make this unexpected transition, there are many conversations within and beyond academia about the nature of online research and also how a researcher shall conduct research virtually in a rigorous as well as ethical way. Looking for Insights, Transformation, and Learning in Online Talk is a timely and comprehensive guide for online research. In today's interview, the two authors, Trina and Alyssa, shared with us not only what this book is about, but also their stories of writing this book and how they envision this book could be used to support novels and experienced researchers. All right. Now let's turn to Trina and Alisa. Hello, Trina. Hello, Alisa. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. It's nice to be here.
0: Hi. Thanks so much I- for having
2: us. Hi. Congratulations on publishing this wonderful book. Thank you. It's very we're very exciting. excited. Yeah, we're very excited to have you today. And first of all, would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, So I'm Trina Paulus,
1: and I'm a professor uh, in the research division of family medicine um, here at East Tennessee State University. Um, And I'll also just mention that um, Alyssa and I know each other because we both went through our Ph.D. programs at Indiana University many years ago.
0: And I'm Alyssa Wise. I'm an Associate Professor of Learning Sciences and Educational Technology at New York University, and I direct NYU Learn, which is the Learning Analytics Research Network. And as Trina mentioned, uh, we, we met each other in grad school. I think you were actually the first person, Trina, that I met uh, the entire in my entire grad school process. I think I met you when I was coming to check out the school, deciding if I was going to come there or not. Um, so it's kind of neat to have had this book happen so many years later from a connection made in really, like, the first moments of grad school.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really cool.
0: Well, amazing.
2: So, it sounds like you have known each other for much longer time, and then later, uh, much later you decided to work together on this book.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we both have worked in the area of analyzing online conversations and discussions in an educational context. So, I think we kept in touch over the years um, and it had been at conferences together and in some of the same academic circles, kind of working um, in parallel with the same kinds of data, but actually went in different directions in terms of how we were looking at that, which made kind of a nice foundation for working on this book.
0: And actually, I, you know, it sort of all started I'm going to forget how many years ago now, but when uh, Carolyn Hathorn invited me to write a book on analyzing online discussions for the second edition of the Sage Handbook of e-learning. And I think, you know, one of my first thoughts was if I'm going to write a comprehensive chapter, it needs to really have both qual and quant in it together. And, you know, Trina was the first person who came to mind as someone who, who does qualitative work that's often very, very different than how I analyze data, but I think had a lot of the same Foundational, not necessarily assumptions, but sort of the foundational ideas about what we need to look at in terms of assumptions when we analyze online conversation. And uh, it just struck me that, you know, even though we do very different things, there was a lot of common ground, and that sort of led us to write this book chapter that is is also out in the world in the in the sage handbook but i think in writing the chapter we realized that we we felt like we were writing a paragraph literally we said about every paragraph this could be a whole chapter of a book there's so much more to say and um so at some point trina sort of said maybe maybe we should do that let's let's take you to those paragraphs and make them into a chapter of a book and let's let's turn this into a book and really expand the content because it could be a really helpful guide to people who want to analyze online conversations. And, you know, there's, there's information out there about how to do different pieces of the puzzle, but there really wasn't anything comprehensive about how do I go about analyzing online talk and really think through everything I need to to make sure that I'm able to make the claims I want to make about what's going on. Yep.
2: So I would, I would like to ask you more about this different direction thing. Would you like to say more about? You know, it sounds like Trina is working on mostly qualitative data, and uh, Alisa, you are working on quantitative data. Um, I'm not sure, like <laughs> if my <laughs> can, I, can I respond to that? that. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so say say a little bit more about that.
0: So I would say, uh, and I would say it pretty strongly, that actually Trina and I don't look at different data. We look very much at the same data, but we look at it in different in different ways. And I think, um, I think for both of us, the data that we start out with is almost always talk data, right? So it's words. But the the way she looks at it, and Trina can tell me if I if I characterize it uh, in an acceptable manner, is is an interpretive paradigm, and so she's looking at the words as words in context, as sentences and phrases, and, it, you know, the whole stream of text as, it, you know, could be how someone's expressing themselves, but it could also be sort of being constructed between multiple people as they go, and I, I do I do bits of that, but mine is much more taking an approach that sort of looks at the language as an object that's been output that represents something, and thinking about how to how to, to analyze that in, um, a really different sort of way. And so it's often quantitative. It's often turning the text into numbers, but even, even keeping the text as text, it's, it's a really different stance as to how, what to do with it, I guess is what I would say.
1: Yeah. And that is an interesting, um, way to think about it is that the data itself is the same, but the lenses through which we're interpreting it or looking at it are different. Um, and one of the, big steps in that process is something we talk about early on in the book, which is identifying the object of interest. What is it exactly that you're interested in looking for in this online talk? Um, because depending on what your object is that you're focusing on different um, data analysis methods, be the, be they qualitative or quantitative might be more appropriate. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, guess I've always pretty much gone down. I started out doing some content analysis and some coding and counting early on. um, But then as I learned more about qualitative methodologies and approaches, they were much more intriguing to me and um, seemed to better fit some of the questions I was interested in exploring. So, I've pretty consistently... um, been interested in using especially language-based methodologies, looking at narrative, how people tell stories and how those stories function, looking at discourse, um, how certain metaphors, certain language choices um, are used in order to perform certain functions in online talk um, and conversation analysis, uh, looking at the turn taking um, and what we can learn about that for how people kind of create their world through language. so that's what made working together on the book so interesting because we're both looking at the same type of data but interpreting it in really different ways for really different purposes
2: so that's very interesting and thank you so much for clarifying this point for us i feel like after uh, hearing your thoughts and this is indeed a better way to represent what you have done in this book and with that i I feel like this is a perfect transition for us to move to more substantive content about the book. And before we start to uh, give an overview, um, give our audience an overview of the book, would you like to say a little bit more about what you consider as online talk? You know, nowadays it's like very many different ways to do this. Well, we actually debated
1: a long time on what to call it, right? Because if you, I would say probably not a lot of people call it online talk. We, we went through online discussions, online conversations, online communication, social media. There's so many ways that people characterize it. And Alyssa, I don't, do you remember why or how we settled on online talk? I remember from my perspective, um, some of the research out of conversation analysis, we characterize um, characterize it as talk, and so I think at the time I kind of felt somewhat strongly about that. But do you remember why we called it online talk?
0: I mean, i I thought we were. I thought we called it online talk for two reasons, or maybe I'm just making this up after the fact. Um, but I thought that one was we wanted to be inclusive, like discussion often connotes discussion forums, but we're also talking right. about social media, or we could be talking about chats. And I also think we ended up with talk instead of something like conversation, because sometimes people aren't talking back and forth to one another. Sometimes people right. are just talking or saying things. And so I think we chose talk because it was general and it, it encompassed sort of times where people were talking back and forth but also where they were just sort of talking out to the world and gave us a bigger a bigger paradigm to to think about
1: yeah yeah that's right that's all coming back to me now um <laughs> yeah so Pengfei, i can't remember what your original question was that we got off on but yeah that's um i, I you think know, she just, wanted to know the differences
0: between online oh yeah yeah and how and we
1: define time. it right yeah. so hope, well, that maybe
0: give us some examples
1: Yeah. So, you know, even in addition to that, you know, even like text messaging on your phone would be, I think we would maybe consider on like anything that's mediated by a computer or external device, you know, a mediated talk that's not face-to-face that has some sort of a channel um, separating people, mobile device, laptop, desktop, uh, it includes Skype and Zoom, you know, video channel. Uh, So, there's a lot of different lot of different things that could be characterized as online talk so
2: so why matters like why does mediation matter that's a great question the whole
1: world is learning why now in the age of covid (laughs) (laughs) if you were ever if anyone was ever if anyone was ever skeptical that it didn't matter probably now they understand why but go ahead alyssa i think you were going to answer that
0: (laughs) well i was just going to say you know so certainly there are methods for studying regular talk but it, it, yeah that's my point like we
2: have uh we have had many like textbooks uh whatsoever uh, about this, you know, analyzing talk in general, right? Yeah.
0: Right. And, and I would say certainly we draw on that prior work. And in fact, a lot of the stuff we did here, if you wanted to, you could probably uh, apply it to face-to-face talk. But some of the things that are special are the ways in which the technology that's mediating the talk affects the talk. And so one thing we try to do is help people distinguish when you see something going on, in talk, how can you start to tease apart whether it's a feature of the talk or maybe it's due to something that's going on there? So we 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 update some uh, a nice set of characteristics from Susan Herring back in the day that just start to talk about how when you were asking us to give examples of online talk, each of these can be characterized. So for example, is something synchronous or asynchronous? It's more of a spectrum than a binary, but how, you know, how is the technology work and how is it being used? And so you know obviously things like Zoom are very synchronous. Um, Things like email used to be asynchronous, but, you know, people can email back and forth. And, you know, now you've got chat tools where it can be very back and forth and then it can be delayed over time. So we talk about how does the the delay over time and the expectation about when you're going to get a reply influence how people say what they say. And that goes on. There's a whole bunch of different um, characteristics, you know, like the simultaneity. Um, can you see when someone's writing a plot, a reply or not, the persistence, how long something lasts, right? There's lots that you can imagine that people put something very different into, um, you know, something like Snapchat than they do into something like email. And, you know, now other tools like Facebook and Instagram with their stories, there's things that sort of disappear, but they don't. And so all of that influences how people talk. You know, there's limits on message size, most famous in Twitter, but present in other places that lead to things that influence how people talk. There's the channels of communication. There's um, how messages are stored and displayed. There's how people's identities are displayed. And you can notice that, you know, if you go to a forum like, um, you know, either Reddit or something like that, it's not very profile based. It's really much about the talk. There can be a profile, but that's not, it doesn't have the same influence. Whereas, you know, in Instagram, it's often all about the pro, the profile. So you can have this sort of very, very similar systems that get used in very different ways. And you see that all coming out now when people are talking about, you know, what responsibilities, different um, different social media platforms have to monitor their content? Well, it depends what their content is and how it's being used for and the norms that have been set up. And uh, I've just been noticing with all of the events that have gone virtual, you can often experience, you know, there's been lots of online concerts or something like that. And you know, the same online concert can happen in Facebook Live. It can happen in Twitch. It can happen on Instagram Live. And in all of them, you have online talk going on around this concert, right? There's a a chat stream going on. And each of the tools has a different interface with different limitations and different features. And the exact same concert ends up having really different experiences and how people are talking about the music based on the tools. And so I think a lot of this goes to say that Online talk is very interesting, but it's not its not neutral, right? It's always being influenced by the technology, and we have to look very carefully at that to make sure that what we want to say about the conversation is being attributed to to the right source or we might say that we don't know that so you know one of the things is you don't always know who's making a comment you know what profile they're using but you don't know who the person is so uh, the book goes into a lot of thinking about those issues and how it's going to affect your research and the kinds of claims that you're able to make about the talk that was a very long-winded answer but hopefully somewhere in there was something to what you were asking well
2: i mean i do i and i found it very interesting because you know i mean as china China said this is the Kind of time that you see how all of this has how all of this medium media mediation like various ways of mediating these talks um, get built into our life, again integrated into our um, COVID nineteen life. So yeah, it's a it's it's like people are pretty um, key at you know uh, coming up with different ways of connecting to each other through, through online platforms, through cell phones, through all of these digital tools. And that's very fascinating and it's very um, intriguing and I'm pretty sure like there will be a lot of people who are interested in studying all of these communications and they will want to learn or they will want to know the different perspectives to uh, study them. So, uh, with that, I want to ask, like, what do you hope to achieve in this book? I mean, we have talked a lot about what is online talk, <laughs> but what do you hope to achieve here I think um
1: Alyssa alluded to one of the one of our motivations um, is that we both have done research in this area for a long time we've read a lot of research in this area and we've taught a lot of students and colleagues how to do or mentored or collaborated with people doing this kind of research and we noticed that there's a lot of bad research out there, um, in part because um, often people haven't necessarily taken the time to think through the influence or the reciprocal relationship between the type of technology and the type of talk that results. And so, you know, the I, sometimes we've even seen people... Um, Claim to have found something interesting about the talk, which actually is just a characteristic of the medium itself. Like, imagine that someone would decide to study Twitter and say, wow what do you know no message is longer than what is the character limit now 280 characters none of the messages are longer than 280 characters isn't that amazing well of course as soon as you look into what twitter is it's not a finding because that's just <laughs> not amazing it's just, at all that's just what the platform affords and so early on in, in you know, as all these new technologies develop And people aren't thinking kind of systematically about how to study them, they'll claim something to be a finding that is really just a characteristic of the situation or the technology. So what we were hoping to achieve was really to provide some guidance and parameters around all of the things that you really need to think about before kind of jumping in to doing research in this area. Um, And like Alyssa said, you know, we really still have not seen another book out there that really guides people through the methodological process for how to think about designing a study of online talk, no matter what the context, um, that there are certain things, just like with any research design, you you have to be able to kind of work through the process. And so we're just hoping to provide, you know, a roadmap um, that people could tailor to whatever kind of online talk and whatever their purpose was um, for investigating it,
0: I second like every yeah. Oh, I, I second everything Trina said. I was just going to add that I think you know our goal was to try and get researchers who often work in lots of different areas sort of on the same page. Uh, you know, so there's sort of a common framework that you can look across studies and say something because you you often see methodology across different studies that's just so different. Um, often because each one is sort of like, uh, like Tosla said, each, each, each uh, unhappy study is unhappy in its own way. There's some problem with each of them, so you can't make comparisons. But also, you know, I, I've, I've been in late stages of a dissertation where I was asked to come in and saw an analysis that was done in such – such an invalid way that there was no way they could keep going they had to go back and redo months of work so part of this is just trying to you know save people getting to a point where they're at a dissertation or they're sending their manuscript out. both of us have reviewed lots of manuscripts submitted to journals that had such fundamental flaws with their methodology that even though what they were doing was exciting there was such question as to whether you could say what they wanted to say was really happening that you know you send it back and, and everyone I think who works in research knows getting a manuscript that you have to revise some of the text or explanation you know it's doable but when you get something that involves redoing analysis especially a lengthy analysis that's that's sort of heartbreaking that anyone would spend that much time and energy doing something when it wouldn't have necessarily been harder to do it um in a way that was valid so i i like to think that we're trying to save people a lot of time by helping them realize all this stuff beforehand instead of after yeah
2: wonderful yeah i can see your points about this um you know, the need to have a better framework to address these issues, especially nowadays people are more and more interested in this type of work. And to some degree, you know, in COVID-19, I feel like people are forced to do online work as opposed to (laughs) online research, as opposed to, you know, face-to-face per the request of many IRB offices, you know, like different offices may have different requirements, but that, that... that's what I've heard from a lot of the offices that they That's only it. allow people to do online research now. So, like, like, what if I uh, if I want to like if I follow up, follow this up with um, another questions that will be, wonder if you could give us a very brief overview of the book using some lay person languages. <laughs> Um, I mean, I guess to distill it down to its
1: essence, um, if you're interested in something, well, there's so, I think it is important to distinguish between the two kinds of online talk the way that we do it in the book, which is what we call researcher generated or researcher influenced data and pre-existing data. And I'll talk a little bit about pre-existing data. And then maybe Alyssa can talk a bit bit about researcher influence because those are the kinds that each of us tend to use. So, I would say if you're engaged online and you're really interested in what's happening for example if you're a if you're a business person and you have a facebook page for your company or your product and you're noticing some really interesting conversations going on uh, in the comments section on a product and you might be wondering like what 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 is is there anything interesting there that i can learn about my product from just looking at the facebook comments um, this book can kind of help you try to define um, a study or a research question, or just in what we call an object of interest, um, and really try to define that and work through the process of answering that question. So, what is going on in that in that in that comment thread that might be useful for you um, as a product manager or a uh, you know the the head of a company. Um, and so, you know, I think people tend to get overwhelmed because there can be a lot of comments on these pages. And sometimes it's hard to know how to bound, you know, set a boundary around what you're going to look at and how you're going to look at it. So that's what the book tries to do is, is to give you a way in to make some decisions to not be overwhelmed with all of that online talk that's out in the world that does have something useful to say. And that's why we called the book Looking for Insight, Transformation and also learning for those of us in education contexts, um, how do you find where the insightful points are when you're presented with this sort of sea of words that um, is hard to get a handle on? Uh, and so that's um, kind of how I think about the usefulness of the book for what, what we call pre-existing data, data that's already out there, online talk that's there, whether, whether as a researcher you look at it or not.
0: So I was going to give, I, I can talk a little bit about research or influence talk, but I was going to give an even more simple answer to, to Pengfei's question, which is, if you want to summarize our book in lay terms, there's lots of people talking online. What's important there? Here's how to find out. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um, and I think Trina alluded to this and you did a little bit earlier to Pengfei when you mentioned uh, framework is I think a lot of it is just sort of, there's so much, where do I start? How do I make sure I do the right things to be able at the end to say what's going on? And, you know, you might want to say, this is what's being said, or you might want to say, you know, it's these is how people are coming together. But in order to do that, you've got to figure out sort of what talk to include in your corpus. Like, what are you going to look at? You know, what what do you need to know going in about what influenced the talk? How are you going to get ready to look at it? How are you going to consider the ethical implications? So there's a lot of detail very quickly, but at a high level, it's how do I understand this online talk? And it's also, there's a lot of guide, uh, Trina mentioned the object of interest is trying to help you really pinpoint what do you want to know about the talk because sometimes people are like oh there's this cool talk i want to know something about it but you know if you want to understand what do people like about your product that's a very different question than trying to understand you know how do people construct their identities through online talk and so really pinpointing what you want to know then the book helps you figure out how to figure it out
2: very interesting so um like if i can um ask of like for examples, you know, I'm I'm kind of person who loves examples, as you could see. And what I'm thinking is that, for example, if a researcher is interested in studying, you know, nowadays um, with the outbreak of COVID nineteen, a lot of people are going online to uh, uh, search for information, for example, about the pandemic, or to offer their emotional support. To their uh, to people around them, or just to you know to to get some support from other people, uh, and there are a lot of things happening in this process. If a researcher is interested in studying this process, uh, will this framework or will this book help them assist them in their research? I'm kind of giving you an question <laughs> a question.
0: I mean, absolutely. I, I think that if you want to understand how people are talking to each other and what they're saying in the world during COVID, this book would give you a step-by-step guide as to how to do that. It's it's going to help you figure out. You know, for example, your example of people looking for support. You know, you could ask questions about you know, objectively, what kinds of support do people seem to be looking for? Or you could be looking at how do people frame requests for support? Or what kinds of requests for support seem to get taken up? Um, You know, you could also look at something that's much more interactive and looking at how – sort of the you know the give and take and the conversation around support giving happens which would be a very different kind of thing same thing with information and misinformation i mean there's a lot going on right now about you know people sort of debating uh different points of views on the issues to put it (laughs) to put it lightly and people both being convinced that they have science on their side or not necessarily caring that there's science involved but you know I've seen very different conversations unfold, some in which people are just, you know, right at each other's heads, and, you know, it's not entirely clear that anyone's going to change anyone's mind. and then you see ones that somehow something changes, and someone says something, and then someone says something back, and suddenly they may not agree at the end, but there's a level of sort of trying to understand another point of view, which I think is incredibly important right now, and trying to understand where someone else is coming from, and so how can we, you know, to me, an interesting research question would be, how do we how do we figure out what makes those conversations where people achieve some sort of understanding of a different perspective than they came in with different from the ones where that doesn't happen. And, you know, is it because of the platform and some of the things that the system allows? Is it because of how people, sort of the stances they take? Is it because how people respond to each other? Is it an emotional thing? Is it a cognitive thing? And I don't know the answer, but if I have that as a general question I want to understand, the book is going to help you say, okay, well, what is, you know, the object you want to understand is what are the qualities of conversations that lead to some understanding another perspective, and then it's going to help you understand what assumptions you need to unpack of your own to do that. It's going to help you figure out what kinds of online talk you should collect from what online sites to help you answer the question. It's going to talk about what are the ethical practices to get that data, and then it's going to talk in detail about how do you analyze that data qualitatively or quantitatively, depending on the approach you're taking to, to get your answers. So I guess I would say yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm convinced if I were the
2: researcher, I would just uh, I would just uh, go for this book and use that as my guideline. And <laughs> and you know, like I think it's very um the book is very comprehensive and it includes so much information about how what you said just now and it has like nine chapters all together. I mean there are a lot of takeaway points. But what I found after reading finished reading this book, like I jotted down three keywords for me. Um, and I don't know like if this will be the keywords for you, but I think maybe we can this can serve as a starting point for us to really dive into the book. The first thing is assumption, the second is ethics, and the third is analysis. So I don't know if I got the right keywords. Uh, oh, <laughs> what do you think, Alisa? I'm giving you two thumbs up. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so um, maybe we can start with assumptions. Like, what? why assumptions matter?
1: You know, it's good because, um, you know, what one of the questions that, That Pengfei, you know, I know that we might talk about is like, what were some of the challenges in writing the book and I think working, working through what we meant by assumptions and what our own assumptions were as researchers going in and how assumptions influence methodology were some of the most fun conversations. And so, and I think challenging, I think intellectually challenging and stimulating in a good way, not challenging as in difficult necessarily. It was really good to kind of have our own assumptions challenged and thinking about different ways to tackle methodology. But like, I know one of the assumptions, because it's really important to my work and probably also, well, it's important to everybody's work is what does language represent? And Traditionally, we think of language as information transmission, that when I am telling you something, I'm just taking ideas out of my head and putting them in your head through the vocal channel going into your ear. Um, but, you know, over the years, you know, my assumptions about what language represents have changed, and I actually don't think of language that way. I take, up, I take it more up as a constructive force, that language is actually constructing things and doing things, and it's performative, and it's, I'm more interested in the actions that language performs and the worlds that language builds um, and the power that language has, as opposed to whether or not language is, you know, transmitting certain information that represents something else, like it represents my knowledge or it represents my emotions. Um, And so there are two sides of a coin and, you know, there's no right or wrong, but those assumptions about what you are taking up in terms of what language represents is going to really change the trajectory um, of what kind of research you do. Uh, so we've talked a lot, you know, just about um, you know the assumptions of what not just online talk is, but just language and talk more generally. What can what does a researcher assume language does or represents in terms of a source of data? Do you have
2: anything to add,
0: Alyssa? I do. What are other assumptions? <laughs> Yeah, please. So in addition to the assumptions uh, about language that Trina mentioned, uh, another set of assumptions that's always been very important to me is assumptions about your object of interest, the thing you're studying. And is the thing you're studying something that you think is a characteristic of individuals or of the group as a whole? And, you know, we're talking about talk. So very often the talk is directed towards people. It's often a conversation where talk is going back and forth. And so, you know, if you think about somebody's sort of opinion on I don't know whether masks are effective or not. Well, we can discuss if that's an opinion. But anyway, you think about someone's opinion, and an opinion is something that an individual has. So it's okay to study it at an individual level. But a lot of times you might be caring about something about the group as a whole. Like, is this group coherent? Then you're caring about whether, co- you know, the different comments match each other. And suddenly your unit of analysis has to be much bigger. And so, you know, people often try to say the group thinks something, but just looking at what individuals think, and that's problematic. So there's you know, so many analytical decisions, especially if you're going to do a quantitative analysis – really matters whether you care about the group or the individual, and that influences a lot of downstream um, decisions that you have to make.
2: Right. It sounds like, you know, under the overarching term of assumption, the book actually has put into it, you know, many different types of assumptions, like what we just talk about, you know, the assumption about language is related to, you know, what you consider as a valid way to approach your research, for example, or it sounds like, you know, the unit of analysis is directly related to, say, generalizability, and I feel like I'm still, I start to use some jargons at this point, but yeah, it's like how generalizable uh, the data, the findings will be. Uh, Yeah,
1: and that's the third assumption, right?
2: Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So it's all related with assumptions, and I really appreciate that the book has made this point very clear to the readers that we have we have carried so many assumptions and it's like so what what do we do with assumptions it sounds like you know it doesn't it it's not very realistic if we want to get rid of all of the assumptions. So what do we do with the assumptions here? It's, I feel like this is related more with the analytic decisions, right? Well,
1: yeah, so it's not getting rid of them. It's acknowledging that they exist and knowing what yours are. Um, so it's all about recognizing assumptions and um, understanding the relationship between the assumptions because we all have assumptions and You know, the idea that that somehow quant the only qualitative researchers have assumptions is, of course, you know, we all every paradigm comes in with assumptions. So recognizing them, acknowledging them and understanding how they impact the research design is what I would say the important not because we can't get rid of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we try to emphasize in the book is that research is all about making decisions And it's not that there's always one right decision, but every decision has trade-offs. And what's important is that you're making decisions explicitly, like you recognize there's a decision there to make and that you're making them consistently. So one of the reasons we talk about assumptions at the very start of the book is because certain assumptions have lots of different implications. And if you know that you have the assumption, for example, if you know that you care about something that you're considering to be an individual construct and you want it to be generalizable, well, that means certain things for how you're selecting your data and certain things for how you're analyzing it. And as long as you make those decisions consistently, you're fine. Where people, I think, get into to problems is they don't recognize an assumption. And so when they get down to the downstream analytical decisions, they sort of make them one at a time without sort of rhyme or reason. They, they make a decision that seems best, but without the bigger picture. And then the decisions end up being inconsistent with each other, which leads to something that doesn't really let you say much. And so our, our whole idea of the book is really to to help people do their research thoughtful, thoughtfully, purposefully, and consistently, and, you know, starting off by recognizing the assumptions that you have going in, I think, is a very big tool to doing that.
2: I really like the point to make the connection between reflection or reflexivity assumptions and then action or decision making. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah I I mean, We would go on and on to talk about the assumptions, but given the limits of our time, I would like to move to our next keyword, so to speak, which is ethics. And about ethics, there are so many things to be said about ethics. And um, I don't know, I mean, where to start? It's like there are so much information online, publicly accessible, but when a researcher want to go online to do research, can they just uh, go there and grab the information? Or what are some of the ethical considerations we need to make? I actually want to turn
1: this over to Alyssa because they're they're not necessarily any different when you're talking about researcher-influenced data, right? So I think with the second data type, which we haven't talked about too much, which is when the researcher is actually involved in generating the data or making decisions to treat data as data before it's generated – the ethics are pretty familiar to most researchers. Um, it's and so I'll let her talk a little bit about that before turning to the to the the morass at, that is pre existing online data.
0: Yeah. So when researchers are involved in the data generation, it's kind of similar to a regular a regular study in some sense. I mean, it is a regular study where um, you know is there a chance to let people know their data is going to be collected? Is there an assumption of privacy? Generally you tell people that this is happening and they have the option to opt in or not. Um, you know, ideally you always want to de-identify the data so you can tell like the same persons said the same things, but it's not clear who it is. You're always trying to think about um, if there's any potential implications to them for this talk getting out. Are there ways that they could be, identified even without their direct identification by what they said. Um, So, you know, kind of standard IRB things where you are going to, you know, ask for people's consent and let them know everything about how you're going to keep the data safe. Um, And it's, with research-generated talk, it's usually somewhat straightforward because you know who the people are, you have some way to connect with them and ask them. So, you know the standard things you would do in any sort of a research study. The only difference I would say is that often, if you're collecting data for a study in a in a real classroom, when people opt out, it doesn't mean they don't participate in the discussion. So you would you say things like, you know, we're going to be collecting data. For a study as part of these online discussions, please let us know, you know, if you're willing to participate or not. And for the people who say no, you have to think about, this is where the assumptions come back in, you have to think about, does that mean that you need to set up the discussions differently? So for example, if you're studying a group construct like coherence, if you don't ask people beforehand, If they're willing to participate and you just put people into little groups of three and a bunch of people say no anytime any person in the group says they don't want to participate suddenly you've lost data for a whole group of three people which which could pretty quickly be devastating so you could say let me ask people beforehand and then make groups of people who agree to participate and who don't but then you also have to think about does that make the groups different in any other way that would lead to some sort of educational disadvantage are a certain group of students saying they don't want to participate more than others and then by putting them together there's some sort of negative influence there. So these are the kinds of things that you have to think about. And that's why knowing ahead of time, if, you're, if they're going to study the data in a group or individual way matters. Because if you're just looking at individual talk, maybe which groups they're in doesn't matter as much. And it's okay to just put people in, in any which group.
1: Yeah, and I think, so I think that, you know, that is a fundamental distinction is what kind of of online talk you're talking about, in part because of the ethical implications and the ability to tie back the talk to individuals, which is almost impossible with pre-existing data that you didn't have some hand in generating. So like in institutions, like educational institutions, medical institutions, counseling, um, companies like places where you have control you know who who's talking to each other you can get informed consent you have a control over the task you can tie discussions back to the people who are involved you can be involved in the facilitation that's a whole different animal really than going on to reddit for example like you know i've had some students do recently and just looking on reddit where nobody well i don't think anybody is their real identity in reddit they all have usernames um there's maybe a very different kind of moderation if any there's you know millions of posts hundreds and thousands of of red threads and subreddits and you're you can't really tie what you're seeing back to individual or group characteristics because you don't really know what they are um And yeah, then there's the ethical dilemma of you know is it okay to go ahead and treat that talk as data when you can't get in touch with those people to ask? Um, But at the same time, is it wise to ignore that whole layer of social life because you can't ask them for their permission? Do we just ignore it and never study it and never act like it you know matters? So that's so what I so there's no easy answers, but there this is also not a new issue. People have been talking about this since the 1990s. So there are multiple books about the ethics of online research um, that you can consult. And in the book, we try to provide some guidance. The Association of Internet Researchers um, particularly has provided comprehensive guidelines to think about things like how vulnerable are these people? like What are they talking about? Um, how, light, how easy is it to actually track back their real identities even if they don't want them? to be revealed, could you actually find out or could the reader of your research find out who they are? Um, Is there a risk to bringing attention to this community? Um, If it's not something like Reddit, but it's like a very small, um, you know, support group for a very rare disease, it'd be pretty easy to track that down. And then is that going to threaten the community? Um, So, you you know there are, and so you know there's many questions like that that you can contemplate. Though I will say, at the end of the day, it has a lot to do with what you're comfortable with as a researcher, because there are no hard and fast rules. There might be some legal ramifications, but often not. If people are talking in a public space on the internet where there's no login required, um, they're not posting as themselves. Anybody on the world can see that talk. Um, a lot of people will say that's free game for researchers to look at as data. Um, a lot of people aren't comfortable with that anymore, like they used to be in the 90s and the 2000s. It, um, nobody really even questioned it. Now there's probably more questioning around that. Um, so all that to say, you know, those are the pre-existing talk and the researcher influence talk are really two different animals. And so there are different ethical issues um, with to tackle for each, but there is a lot of guidance out there to help you think through it. Um, And then we do, you know, dedicate some time in the book to that because it is such an important issue.
2: Well, I feel like when it comes to the question of ethics, there are so many questions to ask. And to some degree, it's more important to raise these questions than to, you know, to give a fixed answer answers to these questions because because you know like it's it's really context based in terms of the answers. Completely. But yeah. And then when it comes to the questions, it's very important to raise the consciousness of the researchers about the existence of these questions, right? Yes. You know, like there are so many responsibilities a researcher needs to shoulder. When they go about um, go online to do research, so 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 I really appreciate that you share um, your thoughts on that, and I feel like it offers a pretty clear map in terms of like navigating all of these ethical dilemmas of uh, quest- uh, issues here in doing research online. And with that, let's move to this analysis part. Like, what I really appreciate about this book is you seamlessly put together both quantitative and po- qualitative approaches. Typically, you know, we see the divide pretty clearly. Um, qualitative researchers only, you know, talk uh, about their using like textual data, for example, and qualitative, quantitative researchers deal with numbers. I mean, Alisa has already corrected me about the object of interest, but still, um, what are some of the thoughts behind this book to present both approaches? Like, like why you want to include both here and why you think this framework is compatible for both?
1: I don't think people can get away with just doing one or the other anymore. Um, you know, when I when both of us started this, it was before social media even existed, right? And, and, you know, it was easier to get away with, I shouldn't say get away with, because I still do, do research like this, but it was much easier to justify doing sort of a small sample case study qualitative approach of a new form of online talk on a kind of very deep level, um, but not looking at a lot of different messages because we didn't have the tools that we have now to look at these giant data sets. Um, the bigger that the, the potential data gets online, thousands, millions of messages, um, and the more we have statistical and computational tools to help us sort of do a first pass Um, look at that in a systematic way that can show us where to delve more deeply qualitatively the more we have those tools the less the harder I think it is to justify not using them um, and just somehow arbitrarily picking a small sample to do a qualitative analysis it's harder for me to justify I guess I shouldn't speak for all researchers so I think I felt it was really important to have both um, because I also think that you're limited in what you can say from large computational approaches without some of the qualitative insights. but for me, as a qualitative researcher, I really feel pushed and challenged to use some of these large these these other tools to help justify how I handle what is essentially big data um, in a qualitative way. Alyssa, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think it's exactly that I think that I think it's partially people should be aware of a different set of methods than they've often used, but that frankly, good research now probably needs to have some elements of both. Um, You know, that's certainly true. Like you're saying in thinking about which, what aspects of this big data do I want to look at in depth? It's certainly true of people doing studies of, you know, big data and never getting close to the data i think that's a problem i think you need the qualitative follow-up to really be able to say anything and i think it's certainly true in computational approaches a lot of the stuff i'm doing now i'm calling mixed methods data mining because i think that good data mining can't stop with a model of the data the model needs to be an entry point to looking carefully qualitatively if you're going to be able to say anything meaningful and from the responses that i've been getting i think this is a message that's ringing really true but I think it's very challenging because, you know, each set of methods is pretty challenging to do well by itself, and now you have to do both of them. So one thing we wanted to do was say, okay, well, maybe you don't need to be an expert in both. You, you kind of need to be an expert in the one that you're doing, and you need to understand enough about the other one to use it somewhat. And so I think part of what we're trying to do is sort of make, you know, different sets of knowledge accessible to everyone because it's, it's important if we're going to be able to be able to say anything meaningful. And look, qualitative and quantitative researchers can look, work well
1: together. We're an example of that. So do can't what we all do. We all just get
2: along. <laughs> yeah, can't we all just get along? Good for you. Wonderful. And well, it's it's very fascinating to hear your um, approach, but also your vision about this line of research. How you know people of different expertise can work together. Smoothly to uh, produce something meaningful, um, and I think one one question I want to ask about this is like Trina you mentioned, with the like there are more tools nowadays to do uh, quantitative data collection. Uh, so I wonder. So one thing that really drew my attention when I was reading the book is Alisa, uh, um, like in the quantitative part, you talked about you know, natural languages processing and how this may help um, the quantitative researchers to turn the textual data into something numeric. Uh, So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that because that's something fairly new. It's uh, fairly new to researchers and to even a lay person to the general audience as well.
0: Sure, so I'm just trying to, can you kick me off once again? I'm trying to figure out where to start. Yeah,
2: like I'm thinking about, you know, like, like for example, like what are some of the uh, tools, uh, what are some of the new techniques um, or new technologies we are using now, or you are using now to do this natural languages processing? Or even, you know, starting from the very first point, like where if, the very first question would be, what is that? like
0: how yeah okay well that's a good place to start i think it was when you were talking when you were mentioning tools is what threw me off because i guess i think what's more important is to think about the techniques and what you're trying to do with the data and i don't really want to get into detail there's lots of different tools you can use to do the same thing and i think that would distract us from the main points here so so natural language processing is sort of you know the intersection of linguistics and computer science and the the you know, it's it's got a lot of different uses. Some of which um, are used for AI uh, purposes, and and some of which we're talking about for research. But the main idea is, it's it's a way for computers to quote unquote understand the natural language of humans, right? So not code, nothing that's written particularly for them, but to make sense of how we talk naturally. And obviously, we're make sense is a bit of a euphemism, but to to look for patterns, to to find ways to interpret. And so, you know natural language processing, when we use it as researchers is really powerful because it helps us in some ways, quote unquote, understand things in the language, not just through reading them, but through looking through for patterns. And so, for example, you know, one thing we have done lots in quantitative analysis is, you know, we turn online talk into numbers, right? We code it in some way. And we do that by saying, you know, for example, I might say, oh, she seemed upset in her post. But if I want to use that in a research study, I can't just say, oh, she seemed upset. I need to find a way to sort of code how upset she was and make sure that if Trina codes the same talk, she also sees the sort of more or less same amount of upsetness. This is something we do a lot to turn the talk into numbers so that we can then model it in all sorts of other ways, but it's very, very time-consuming. If we can build a model by which the computer, based on linguistic features, can quote-unquote understand if somebody's upset by reading their post, we suddenly saved ourselves a massive amount of time. And so, the way computers do this is, um, you know, we look for different features in the language. If somebody's upset, they're likely to use certain kinds of words more they're likely to use certain kinds of parts of speech they're probably likely to use very specific words like i'm angry I mean, that's a very basic example, but so what you can do is you can hand code a bunch of text and then you can try and model it and say, how well can I build a model by which this computer can make a judgment that someone is upset in the same way that a human did? And if if you can get the computer to be somewhat reliable to what humans would code and realizing that human coders are not always in agreement in the first place, then you've got a way to suddenly analyze much, much, much more data, much more quickly. So that's sort of one use of natural language processing. Other uses are to model model text in different ways by looking at patterns. So you know we've been doing something with conditional word embedding models that basically um, positions words into a multi-dimensional space. Imagine a 50-dimensional f- space. So I always think of it as like stars in the sky, but in 50 dimensions. And basically, words that get used in similar ways, i.e., show up in similar grammatical constructions with other similar words around. Them of words that people are using similarly and then that can give you a sense of how they're using language so we've done that to build up a bunch of different concepts that's let us understand uh, professional identity development and you know it comes use language reveal a lot about them and computers help us find patterns in that that humans wouldn't be able to notice otherwise does that answer some of your question yeah i
2: mean it's very helpful like i'm like you know I have zero knowledge on this issue at all, but I think it's very interesting and also very eye-opening to hear what you said about you know, the new possibilities that this type of work have um, bring have brought to researchers. You know, like these are all different ways to explore the online uh, talk. And, um it's uh it's very it's very interesting and it sounds like all of these you know like technological advancement have um, helped us a lot in doing this quantitative analysis. If we turn to qualitative analysis, now I will have my question for Trina about the qualitative analysis. Like, what do you think? Um, what are some of the keys to have successful? to analyze the qualitative
1: data insightfully or successfully? So in terms of online talk, I think, um, you know, when I think about that question, I think one of the strengths of the qualitative analysis is to have a strong theoretical framework. And and it's not that this isn't true for quantitative, but I think that we have to get past um, just sort of doing like a thematic analysis or just a quick categorization of what they're talking about. Um, Because I would bet at this point that's been done, (laughs) you know, because people have been looking at online talk for a long time. And so coming in with more of a strong understanding of what's already been done for one thing and situating qualitative analysis within a strong theoretical framework that you're specifically trying to understand what's going on, uh, you know, in detail, in depth um, because you're trying to connect maybe something new to something that's gone before and being able to add a thick theoretical interpretation to what you're seeing there um, that's situated in a certain community of practice to me is really key. Um, I feel like too much, you know, I feel like too much qualitative work generally speaking um, is too superficial when the whole point of qualitative analysis is to be able to say a lot about a little bit of data as opposed to a little bit about a lot of data. So to have that depth and have a strong theoretical interpretation by the end of the study, it's not like you necessarily um, have to go in knowing exactly what the theoretical interpretation is going to be, but you've got to get there at some point and then connect that into some kind of line of research that's been going on. And I think, you know, one thing that does worry me because it's funny because Alyssa and I both have a background in online learning and teaching. Right. And so I think I know I'm a bit distressed thinking about how many people are going to think that there's been no research in online learning and teaching because they've never taught online until COVID. And now all of a sudden it's like, Oh, wow, there's this new area of research. And it's actually been going on, I don't know, 50 years now, (laughs) distance learning, correspondence learning. Um, And so really understanding where your study is going to fit into a very long line of research is important. Um, So I think spending the time to understand where your study fits into the larger trajectory, understanding that you do need sort of a a strong theoretical lens, you have to have very clear assumptions about what you think the language is doing. and you know, being very systematic and hopefully transparent in your analysis, your analytic approach is key. I don't know that any of that is particularly different from quantitative, um, other than to say you know it's just as important in qualitative work to be very thorough and systematic and clear that you know what you're doing and why, um, and what's new and what's not. Um, <laughs> I think is is I think we both feel really strongly that. That taking the time to understand, I mean, that's why we have a whole chapter on literature review, like taking the time to understand and learn about what the field already knows um, is is really important.
2: Well, thanks for sharing. And again, this attests to why you two can work together so well. Like you have, you have shared so much um Common, common grounds in terms of all these key questions and has been really uh, insightful to hear your thoughts on this. So um, we've covered the, like um, the three keywords I thought it would be meaningful to dis- discuss here. What are some of the things you feel like you would like to bring up or you would like to draw our um, audience attention to about this book?
1: Oh, you know, I was
2: actually looking
1: through the book again in preparation for this, and I had not forgotten, but I remembered how much we liked having clear design decisions. Like, throughout the whole book, we're very explicit about the decision points um, that you need to make if you're designing a study like this. And so, I think that we're hoping that that really helps people know, okay, here's a decision that you have to make after you've read this part of the book, and then you make that decision and you move forward. So, I really like that that we put those in there.
2: Okay, so design another keyword. Yes, what about you, Alisa?
0: I think design is a word. I also think decision is. You know, I think I said earlier on in this conversation that research is really, and this research is about a lot, a lot of little decisions that all add up to something really big. And I think a lot of times, you know, research texts give you the big picture, but they don't point out how each little decision matters. And so I think we've really tried to do that. And you know, each chapter—that's not a ton of decisions. It's five, it's seven kind of things, but really laying out, okay after reading this chapter, you need to think about these five things for your study. So I think the decision thing is very important. And I also think this is, this is quite a bit more micro, because I think we've talked about most of the macro issues in the book, but, um, you know, I was really happy that in the quantitative analysis part, we did add the sections on the computational modeling, because I think that that hasn't always been combined. And, um, Without thinking too highly of myself, I like to think that we did a pretty good job of explaining the hows and whys of some of the major techniques, not the details of how do you go do a social network analysis or how do you do topic modeling, but understanding what topic modeling is, is a big level, what kinds of questions it could help you answer and in what situations you might use it. And if that's the right technique, then there's lots of resources to go and learn and do more. Same thing I think with social networking. Well, same thing with the qualitative chapter that Trina did a really good job on, you know, should I be using conversation analysis, thematic analysis, narrative analysis? Okay. Once I know which one it is, there's lots of books that can tell you how to do it step by step. But I think people often miss that first step of saying, well, really what's the right approach to be taking in the first place? And, the answer to what's the right approach is of course, what's the approach that's going to match your assumptions and help you answer the questions you have about your object of interest. So remember it's going all the way back to those things that we said were important to establish at the start because those are gonna be the basis by which you make decisions. So I guess, yes, it comes back to decisions. I think we're trying to outline sort of what are the decisions to be made? What are the options and how do you go about doing that? Which I think if people do their research better then I'm, I'd be really happy.
2: Wonderful. So, design and decisions. These are like two addition, two wonderful additions of the uh, keywords. And what do you think are the best use of the book?
1: A paperweight? No, just kidding. <laughs>
0: doorstop <laughs> that was my other option <laughs> um,
1: I mean I, you know we we tried to make it pretty versatile for a wide variety of audiences so I mean I know that we each have used it in our own teaching but it's not so we don't want it to stop there so we actually did not put in a lot of um, we didn't frame it only as a textbook so like if somebody in the field you know is interested in this topic um, a practitioner I think they could pick it up and we tried to not make it super academic jargony or textbooky so that anybody who wants to, you know, look for insight or transformation, um, like where where are the cool things happening um, in this online talk? Like Alyssa put it earlier, like this would be a good book to just kind of it's almost like a book to know what you need to know. It, like works. it helps you get through those decision points and then know where you might need to go to get some additional guidance, especially in the analysis part. I was just gonna say for all of those people who are teaching online for the first time and wondering how do I know if my students are learning anything online, Read our yeah. book because that's what we both. That's where, those were our first research questions for both of us. Yeah. Was, you know, where is the learning in, in online, online learning? learning. Exactly. And then we both branched out from that. But definitely, if you're curious to figure out is there, a there, there, um, this book will help you think through that.
2: Wonderful. I hope um, a lot of the instructors all found this book helpful when they are trying to you know establish their online. Um, teaching and learning platform. And I know this will be uh, one of the urgent, fairly urgent tasks for a lot of instructors in this country in the coming few months. And we have said so much about this wonderful book. So
0: what are you working on now? Um, so, one of the projects is one of the ones I mentioned uh, a bit earlier. I was mentioning that we we've collected about a million reflections uh, from dental students who are starting to become dentists um, sort of on their courses and their learning and their identity development. And uh, you know, we've been doing a lot of different studies. Most of these have our mixed method data mining. So one was the one I was mentioning where we, we created a word embeddings model of the different words they use together, use those to identify clusters of similarly related words, which we termed concepts. Then we created a concept network between them based on their co-use in sentences. And then we use that as a method to sample sentences, sorry, sample reflections for qualitative analysis. So we went from a million, uh, a million reflections down to a couple hundred thousand down to, I think, about 150 for each of the 11 concepts that we analyzed qualitatively in depth. And we saw all sorts of interesting things um, about how dental students develop their professional identity. And one of the big ones was that all models of professional identity um It talks about students sort of closing the gap between their current identity and the identity they want to have or moving through stages, which is all sort of very goal oriented. And what we saw was also personalization. So it wasn't just, I want to be a dentist, but as they went further in their program, they talked about what kind of dentist they wanted to be and there were different kinds. And so that's something we saw in these online reflections that they were making. So that was kind of an interesting uh, study that I think talks about everything that we've talked about today, where we were really interested to understand um, how students' identity was developing, assuming that these words, when they were talking about their professional identity, was a reflection of that. And then we used computational methods to model it, and we used that as a a way in to do a qualitative analysis that sort of helped us flesh out what these concepts really meant and took us all the way to something very interesting.
2: Well, that sounds amazing. We look forward to hearing more findings from you. Maybe one day if you have another new book, we welcome you to join us again in the near future. What about you, China?
1: So, um, I've moved into a new position um, over the past year. So, I'm working um, in a medical education context now. And so, I've started a new line of research that I did not necessarily think was going to have anything to do with online talk. But now, because of COVID, may well, most likely will move in that direction. So, I'm looking at um, doctor-patient communication um, in a medical school context and looking, analyzing videos of healthcare providers, students, nursing students, medical students, pharmacy students, um, and how they learn to interview patients, um, patient-centered interviewing. Um, so it's in an educational context, but until now has been in-person interviews, standardized patients and the students, they do an eight minute interview exam um, where they're trying to understand the patient's perspective on their illness. And so we have a huge corpus of recorded videos data, basically. Um, And using conversation analysis methods to understand um, turn taking and how those conversations sort of play out and what that means for patient-centered care. Well, of course, you know, there's not a lot of in-person interviews going on now. And so with telehealth and telemedicine, kind of everybody shifted to that in the past two months, ready or not, here we go. Um, And we're in a rural healthcare setting here in East Tennessee. So not only are the actual clinics, doctors, residents now doing telehealth, um, but pretty soon um, some of the student exams are likely going to be in a telehealth context as well. And so kind of, unintentionally or serendipitously, um, I will probably be able to use some of these methods for thinking about how the online setting, uh, the platform that they use, which is a commercial platform for telehealth, they don't use Zoom or anything like that, how the platform influences those conversations and some of the different situational and technological considerations um, for making sense of those interviews. So I'm expecting that's going to be coming um, down the pike soon. So it's kind of interesting the way things work out.
2: Indeed. It's very interesting to see how you, you know, after finishing up this book, like try to use some of the like to apply some of the um some of the insights you read you've written in this book in your own work and and break some new grounds also. So well, thanks for sharing with us and we have taken so much time from you today. Thank you again for uh, being with us. It's a great pleasure to talk with you both.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. It was fun. Yeah, it was great to have a conversation and also connected to some of the current things going on with Online Talk Now, right? Because the book came out about a little while ago. And so thinking about it, was certainly pro- <laughs> pre-COVID, which feels like a very long time ago, and just, <laughs> just thinking about the relevance now was helpful.
2: Yeah, it is very relevant. And thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.